Hello again, friends. We're still in this very weird time where nothing is certain and we don't know what's really ahead of us. It's hard to be here. It's also hard to know what topic or information about gender and sexuality is the most relevant or helpful here. Um, in light of that, I'm turning to art. So today I'm going to share with you a few of my favorite pieces by a few of my favorite writers and one piece of my own. Um, I hope you find something to connect to here. So first I'm going to start with a piece by Eli Clare from an anthology called Troubling the Line, Trans and Genderqueer Poetry and Poetics. The piece is called Because Poems Are Kisses, Fists, and Underground Reverse. Because poems are stiletto heels in the hands of drag queens and femmes, ready to be thrown, ready to be worn, fierce and beautiful. In high school, I started writing poems because I sat in sixth period study hall bored out of my mind. I chose the only alternative, Mr. Beckman's poetry class. It held no appeal. I hated poetry and didn't like the teacher much more, but I was bored enough to give it a try. Because poems are Chinook salmon swimming upstream to their spawning beds, old-growth Douglas fir dappling the ground in shadow. We wrote poems, read poems, sent poems out for publication, proudly collected our rejection letters. I fell in love. Because poems are mountainsides clear-cut for lumber and paper, mountaintops blasted and bulldozed for coal, pale green of new growth already returning. In that tiny backwoods school, none of us studied AP English or became national merit scholars. Rather, we ended up single mothers and grocery store clerks, gas station attendants, and regulars at Pitch's Tavern. We read every book in our town's one-room public library and died in drunken car crashes. Because poems limp and stammer, tremor and drool, hallucinate and have panic attacks. Because they are cracks, crevices, fault lines. We took field trips, drove hundreds of miles, heard Caroline Kaiser, Galloway Kinnell, Gary Snyder read their poems, studied Walt Whitman but not June Jordan, Emily Dickinson but not Lucille Clifton. Because poems stand in line at the welfare office, collect food stamps, Medicaid, SSI. Because they gossip, laugh, pass the word, don't let them get you down. Because poems are kisses, fists, and underground rivers. Poetry grabbed me by the collar, whispered in my ear, you're coming with me. I followed willingly, not knowing where we were headed. Because poems are quilts passed from grandmother to grandchild, the frayed cloth of three generations sewn and re-sewn. Because they are old protest songs and riotous graffiti, tattoos, and sandhill cranes trumpeting at dawn. Later, I joined a peace march, walked from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C., 3,700 miles for global nuclear disarmament. I couldn't stop writing. Because poems are driftwood logs rolling in the surf, barnacles gripping the rock, fishermen hunkering over coffee at 4 a.m. before they drive down to their boats to begin another 14-hour day. We sang in church base basements, told stories in greasy spoon cafes, camped in city parks and cow pastures, read poems at peace rallies. We held vigil, blocked traffic, and got hauled off to jail. Because poems are earthquakes, hurricanes, rivers swollen beyond their banks, the shovels and pickaxes used to dig out. 
I dreamed, walked, woke up with poems, words clamoring and insistent, wrote about missile silos and army depots, cornfields and garbage dumps. I memorized my poems, stepped up to the microphone. I didn't feel bold. Because poems are not traded on Wall Street, nor are they variable interest loans, foreclosed mortgages, the endless paperwork of bankruptcy. At those peace rallies and coffee houses, my voice shook and cracked, sometimes beginning to carry. Because poems happen after rapes and police beatings, happen late at night on death row and in army barracks. Because poems are the groan of good sex, the thud of grief, the quiet after big change. I am a poet. Again, that was by Eli Clare, and that piece is called Because Poems Are Kisses, Fists, and Underground Rivers, and I found it in the anthology Troubling the Line, Trans and Gender Queer Poetry and Poetics. The next poem I'm going to read is from Kai Chang Tom's book, Fierce, Fem- Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars, A Dangerous Trans Girl's Confabulous Memoir. Um... I came upon this piece the other day, and it has been kind of what I'm living for right now. Um, But aside from this piece, this book is phenomenal. So if you haven't heard of it or read it, I definitely recommend checking out Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars, A Dangerous Trans Girls Confabulous Memoir by Kai Cheng Tom. From my notebook, long hair, slowly, slowly. Little by little, my hair takes hold, grows longer, grows curious, grows bold. Quietly, meekly, almost unnoticeably, my hair creeps its way past my earlobes, my throat, my shoulders, and collarbone. My hair is dreaming itself, longer and freer, wilder and tangled. It dreams itself snarled and knotted and restlessly windblown. My hair is dreaming and becoming becoming and dreaming, dreaming and becoming and becoming and becoming. My hair is becoming long enough to fall stubbornly into my face whenever I am eating, to get caught in my food and caught between my lips twisted round my fork like strands of spaghetti. My hair is becoming long enough to fall past my chin, pull back in a ponytail, to twirl round my fingers as I am thinking of everyone I have ever left behind. My hair is becoming heavy, like the air in my father's kitchen after my mother has slapped him across the face, a thickness like thunder waiting to boom its way out of the clouds. My hair is becoming thick, like the trees in the park behind my parents' house where I escape to at night to climb up into the gnarled hands of the branches to cling beneath the moon and count my breathing while listening to the sound of the coyotes' howls. Yes, my hair is growing longer, long enough to hide my eyes behind like a curtain of clouds pulled shut over the moon, long enough to drape around me in a silken blanket to keep out the winter's teeth, to wrap around my loved ones and keep them safe, long enough to tie up in a sinuous braid and wind around my head like a circlet of rose vines to twine into a love-me-knot, a witch-knot, into nine magic knots to bring what I want to me and bind it close to my heart forever and ever and ever as long as a tall tale, a fishy story, fat and flapping its fins, as long and sinuous as a serpent forking its tongue, as long as the threads of a web of lies, silken, barely visible, shimmering like temptation in the orchard of desire, sticky as hope.
hope and inevitable as despair, a web to fall into like falling in love to get caught and trapped in all the while knowing that it was made of your own spinning my hair is going to be long enough to let down and unwind like your spine unwinding after a 12-hour shift and no cigarette breaks to unravel like a good old yarn finally coming right to sweep out in a long flowing mass and drag a comb through over and over like a sea hag summoning the storm my hair is going to be so long that it will fall like a river flowing endlessly and relentlessly will race over land and cut through mountains unstoppable in its glory in its search for its mother, its search for the healing sea. My hair will be dark enough to pool like shadows pooling around the kitchen table as the summer evening grows long and you wait hour after hour for your lover to return, dark as the memories swimming up like bitter taffy in the back of your throat, dark as the places you go in that moment between wakefulness and falling asleep as the nothingness you sometimes imagine might be a better place to be in than here, dark like the nighttime and the loneliness settling into your bones and it will be soft like her lips running over the tiny hairs on the back of your neck soft as her palms slick with wanting sliding over your thighs and into your body soft as the sounds she makes as she pushes inside you soft as believing that some things can last long enough to drape through the window and slither over land and float through the sea and tangle up ships and bring them to land to reach into the depths and bring up treasures long forgotten an ancient statue a sunken cathedral a trunk full of pearls and spanish doubloons to curl around the world like the snake that some people say gave birth to all life to unfurl like a giant fishing net across the sky and catch all the stars as they race through the heavens to spill like the galaxy unfolding like the milky way spreading so the ancient Chinese lovers of legend could walk across the bridge of heavens to find each other once again, to slide under doors and into corners through cracks in the sidewalk and holes in the ground, to slip into the silent places, the hiding place, the place where lost sisters go and wrap threads round their wrist and guide them back to the place where things live, to reach back through time and through memory and time, to race back through time and find the ancestors singing, to bind us once more to words flowing in their art arteries and veins to bring back their blood into our hollow haunted hearts and make us all whole at last. Yes, my hair, my hair, someday, soon, my hair will be long enough. Again, that's by Kai Chang Tom, and it's from Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars, A Dangerous Trans Girl's Confabulous Memoir. Such a good book. Okay. The next piece is called Massage, and it's by Alok Badmenen, and it's from their chapbook chap called Femme in Public. I spend my evening in a cramped apartment on the Lower East Side with an old white woman and her cat. Susan has a reputation in town for being one of the only massage therapists who does not hold back. I do not fully comprehend what this means until our first session. She walks on top of you. She spends copious amounts of time piercing your butt cheeks. She contorts you into positions that you still aren't sure are possible. She sticks a glove in your mouth to massage your jaw. She is honest with you that she fully intends to hurt you. I am honest with her that I keep coming back precisely because she makes me hurt. 
There is something beautiful, sacred even, about our honesty, about her strange hands and her familiar touch, about the way we admit our pain so candidly. I have never met anyone so upfront about their desire to hurt me. I wish Susan could have taught my exes a thing or two about naming one's intentions up front. On these evenings, I am tasked with the effort of making small talk with Susan for the entire two-hour session. She is chatty. She has lots of questions about my generation and the internet and what is it you do again? The trick is to keep asking her questions so she keeps talking and you don't have to attempt to speak as she drives her elbow into you over and over again. Tonight, I ask Susan how she started doing massage. She tells me that she has always been fascinated by human pain. Me too. She tells me she has devoted her life to understanding how people experience pain and what they can do to cope with it. Me too. What can we do to cope with it, Susan? I think we have different it's that haunt us when we both go to bed alone after the session, but tonight the specifics feel inconsequential. She tells me a story. One evening, a woman came by with some bad knots in her leg. She had no idea what was going on. When Susan started to work on her, this woman started weeping uncontrollably. Susan asked if she should stop, but the woman said, no, go deeper. So Susan kept digging and digging deep into the night, and suddenly that woman sat up and had a flashback to a memory from long ago. She remembered that more than 20 years ago, when she was a kid, she was assaulted on the way home from school. Her assailant broke her leg so she couldn't get away. When she got home, her mother didn't believe her and scolded her for being late. Susan sat there with that stranger, and I'm pretty sure they breathed the same air, and I'm pretty sure her cat meowed, and her clock on the wall ticked as she wrote, I believe you, with her elbow on that woman's back. Susan tells me that her job as a masseuse is not necessarily to get rid of the pain, but rather to bear witness to it, to recognize it, to affirm it. She says that we live in a country, a world that teaches us at every level that one is, that our hurt is a story we made up. And we internalize that to our core and write it into every muscle in our body. I am wrong. I am wrong. I am wrong. She says that some people just need to hear that what happened to them was not their fault that people tend to know what is best for themselves. They've just been told over and over again that they don't. Sometimes I just need to hear that what happens to me is not my fault. So every month, I climb up the stairs to a cramped apartment in the Lower East Side with an old white woman and her cat, and she massages me. I mean, she performs her own form of poetry, and both of us are searching for ways to survive, to find meaning and substance in the intangible, to delve and dig and prod and jab and yank and pull on all of those parts of ourselves still stuck deep in there. So sometimes I forget my own power. So sometimes I need to be hurt in order to heal. So sometimes I need to be reminded that my body is mine. So sometimes I need to be reminded I have a body. So sometimes I want to cry on the street when I'm surrounded by hundreds of people about all of the it's that they are going home with that night. So sometimes there is something refreshing about the intimacy between strangers. It's unfamiliar, familiar honesty. It's piercing candidness. So sometimes Susan does not get my politics or my life, but she touches my body and she understands that there are things in the world that cause me a great deal of pain, and sometimes that feels like enough. 
Again, that's a piece called Massage by Alok Vadmenin from their chapbook, Femme in Public. And the final piece that I'm going to share with you all is a piece that I wrote. Um, it's called Among Other Things, and it's hopefully going to be coming out in a book that I'm writing with my dad um, someday. <laughs> it started with an itch, which spread like a crack in the windshield along the length of the planks of the jaw and sometimes swinging into the soft cove under the chin and sometimes up into the malleable clay of the cheeks I scratch clawing away the dormancy of years of uncertainty, disavowal, and even before that unknowingness, unwantingness, a desperate desire pulling me in the exact opposite direction, battening down the hatches of undisturbed pores, mortified by the non-idea that someday this plaster would crumble and vibrant life would spring forth. Examining the new growth in the mirror, I think of my forest home, burning and growing and burning, pulled down off the mountain by the buzz of electricity, out of the trees, back to the realm of tile and porcelain where shards of my new garden fall to the ground. The first time I shaved my head, I swept all of the hair up and added it to my compost pile. Every morning I would accompany my coffee out into the yard, lift up the covering, attempting to catch the disintegration of detritus back into earth, but transformation is a slippery beast. The defiant hairs lay there on the pile, depriving me of the satisfaction I sought, adding fuel to the coals smoldering deep in my chest. They threaten to burst into full flame, but never quite manage. The vines erupt from my jaw, sculpting the lower half of my face out of a raw combination of expectation, hope, and disbelief. Were the seeds always lying there, under the surface, snuggled contentedly among veins, fat, glands, bones, until awakened by the call of a mysterious and sterile concoction? Or was their existence itself stirred into being by this chemical experiment? The sheer possibilities for production are beyond fathom. My fingers finding themselves pulled toward my face, rub, stroke, mingle with the new inhabitants, this new background always seeping back into the spotlight of my thoughts. And what of the patches that remain fallow? Are they incapable of sustaining life? They sit, defiantly barren, next to their demonstratively fertile neighbors. There is a small area just below the cleft of my chin that refuses the volcanic interruption. On either side of this patch lie what appear to be the two most populated hubs in this new geography. As the tendrils creep, they begin to curl around an invisible center, the eye of growth. My chin hosts twin tornadoes, each held at arm's length by the cleft. Lending a faintly demonic slant to my appearance, albeit inverted, horns sprout from my chin instead of my crown. I shave out of fear, fear that the dentist will find my chin repulsive and become so engulfed by his distaste for the lower half of my face that he will miss his mark with the needles, drills, sharp sticks, and strike a nerve or artery. 
the irony of losing the feeling in some part of my face or being at risk of greater bodily harm because of the newfound joy flowing from the follicles in my face is too much for me. I crop my crop hoping that the stubble will somehow fly beneath discipline's radar that the signs on the sign of the road warn me of so emphatically, so persistently, so regularly that they become a fixture in my own mind as though of my own creation. I refuse the closeness of an analog shave repelled by the sticky smooth that remains after the blade runs its course along the coarse stalks of my face. It is as though my fingers will be sucked down inside my cheeks, pulled in by the absence of the now familiar texture with no imaginable endpoint. My arms buried up to the elbow inside my face, down my throat, fingers reaching into my stomach. I can feel it starting to turn, the unmistakable pang of nausea beginning to increase in size, rolling down the hill of my mind, picking up speed and debris, among other things. So I wield the sting of static and hum of power as a buffer between myself and this avalanche. Mowing, rather than bulldozing, the ghost of this field peeks out from beneath my jaw running my palms along the stiff peaks jutting from my chin. The smell of my father wafts across my memory, a mingling of the odors of body, generic detergent, coffee, of humility, of calm, of home. Of nights when the clock would slowly inch past bedtime, the sound of my father's voice fills the living room, animating a story to the rhythm of the fire in the stove. The flames of the sun, long since silent, even the stars lean in to hear the end of the chapter my father's voice strains against growing fatigue. Upon the arrival of the chapter's end, always too soon, he claps the book shut with finality in answer to the protestations of my sibling and me, and then, as I weigh wiggling and giggling on the couch, he grabs hold of my ankles and hoists me with ease until I hang bat-like in his cave. Raising the bottoms of my feet to his chin, he rubs them along the stubble there as he cackles with mischievous glee, stimulating my soul by way of the soles of my feet. My father taught me early on about the joy that emanates from facial hair. This isn't a newfound pleasure at all. That piece again is called Among Other Things, and I wrote it. Um, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I hope you found something of value here. I wish you well. Until next time.